0: Hello and welcome to the Chaha Wakbara Bassett Creek Oral History Podcast, where our guests discuss ways that they and other indigenous peoples have lived, worked, and played in the Chaha Wakbara watershed for thousands of years. This project was created in Minnesota Makoche, or Minnesota, the traditional and contemporary homelands of the Dakota people. The project was co-led by Dr. Casey Keeler and Crystal Boyd with support from community partners. More information is included at the end of this episode. On behalf of everyone who contributed to this project, thank you for tuning in.
1: So good morning, Kathy. How are you today? I'm wonderful. How are you? Good. Thank you so much. So I am joined this morning by Kathy Vick. Um, for the Haha Wakfadan Bassett Creek Oral History Project. So we had a time, a chance to connect on the phone last week, so you know a little bit about this project and what it's about. So the first question I want to begin with is, when and for how long have you lived or worked in the area surrounding Bassett Creek? Uh,
2: pretty much my whole life, about 59 years.
1: You are... Um, out of all the interviews we've done thus far, you have been in this area the longest. So I'm excited to hear um, your perspective on this. Um, Knowing that you've been in this Bassett Creek, Haha Wakpatan area for about 59 years, what brought you and or your family to this area?
2: Well, uh, we moved here. Um, We moved from Crystal, to Crystal when I was just a little girl. And I was probably three years old when we moved to closer to Bassett Creek in Crystal. And um, Crystal is an area where Golden Valley's like two blocks away, Robbinsdale's a block away in the area that we were on. We were right off of uh, 36 and 100, Highway 100. And so, my parents bought a home, and it was a—they uh, call it a slab house—but back in the 60s, it was um, it was affordable, and um, so my parents bought a home, and that's why we moved to uh, 35th and and uh, 35th Avenue North, and which is just blocks away from Bassett Creek.
1: What brought your family to Crystal?
2: Uh Well, my mom and dad were married. Dad grew up in uh northeast Minneapolis, and mom grew up in uh, Minneapolis and then St. Paul. My mother grew up in an orphanage. She was put in an orphanage with her three sisters when they were very young. And they came out of the orphanage when it closed and went back with their mother and lived in Duluth and um, then her mother moved to Minneapolis and thus they met, my mom and dad met, and um, they moved to Crystal because it was uh, close proximity to Minneapolis, yet it was a suburb and it was affordable and there were lots of uh, neighborhoods with children. and. I come from a a pretty large family there. I have five brothers and sisters. And so they really were looking for an affordable home that they could raise their children in. And so Crystal being so close to Minneapolis, um, which they were very familiar with and working in, um, made all the difference.
1: I feel like hearing your story of your family experience moving to Crystal, the Bassett Creek area, about 60 years ago was so similar to my own story. My husband and I purchased our first home in Crystal, just wow. off of Highway 100 um, and 42nd. Okay. So like the next exit. Yeah. Um, in 2012. And we lived there for about five years before um, I finished my PhD and coming to Wisconsin. Um, but very same story coming out of the recession, Crystal was affordable. The close proximity to Minneapolis, where we were both working, me being in graduate school. Um,
2: yeah, I miss, I miss that area. It's really located. It's with the highway right. 100 and and being so close to Minneapolis, it really uh, it was a good place.
1: Right, and as you mentioned, you know, you're blocks away from so many other cities suburbs. Yeah. I I would go on runs when we lived in Crystal, and I was in better shape. And I would come home and I would tell my husband, oh, I ran through Crystal, I ran through Golden Valley, I ran through Robbinsdale. New Hope. Yeah, they're all just intertangled there. Yeah. So when you moved to this area, did you attend school? Um, Where did you go? And were you um, and or um, anybody else in your family involved in Indian education programming through the school districts?
2: Okay. Um, I went to Noble School uh, for kindergarten, and then I went to Lee Elementary, Lee, um, off of 36th and Noble for uh, first grade through sixth, and then I um, went to Robinsdale Junior High, and um, in Robinsdale Junior High, our house caught on fire. And so our house actually burned down. And so then we moved um, right off of Victory Memorial Drive over North Minneapolis. We rented a home before we actually found a home to buy before that. Um, And I do not recall. And so then I went to Patrick Henry. Mm -hmm. um, And But all my siblings, the older siblings, I'm uh, number four out of six. And my older siblings went to Robbinsdale all the way through. So they went through to the Robbinsdale Senior High. Mm -hmm. I was in eighth grade. And in eighth grade, you went through the middle school um, right off of 42nd, where you were talking to where those townhomes are now. That's where the junior high was. Okay. Um, But then... So I finished eighth grade and then in Robbinsdale, you went and, and uh, Minneapolis, wait a minute, Robbinsdale, I would have actually gone to um, the junior high through ninth grade, but in Minneapolis, then you started school nine through 12.
1: Okay, for high school.
2: Yes, for high school. I do not recall any Indian education. Mm. Subsequently, my grandchildren live uh, in Robbinsdale. I have uh, one lives in Robbinsdale. My son and his his family, and then my other son lives in New Hope. Okay. Um, there have now been Indian education programs in right. the schools today
1: were your two children
2: involved in any Indian education programs? No.
1: Wow. It will be interesting. Uh, And now I want to go look to see when they began in Robbinsdale, because I also feel like Robbinsdale has um, a pretty noteworthy Indian education program.
2: Yeah. Um, You know, it, uh, my children did not, and my children, um, they, they went to I, I did live in hopkins with my kids for mm-hmm. a bit so they went to school in the hopkins school district um and there was no indian education mm-hmm. in that i recall with them
1: yeah
2: um but with my grandkids there is there is indian education right while i think there could be some improvements and the comments that they have made Mm -hmm. um, about the program. It's, it's been enriching for them. Um, but it's, it's a good, good first step, I think.
1: Right. I think I maybe shared this with you last week, but I went through the Indian education program in Anoka Hennepin school district growing up. And Mm -hmm. then I also worked for the Indian education program in Anoka Hennepin after I finished my bachelor degree. And I think for so many of those K through 12 students, it's, one way that they're able to connect to a larger American Indian community. Um, There's lots of improvements obviously that can be made particularly in public education and funding Indian education. Um, But it was one avenue for students to have that cultural connection. Um, And some students had stronger community ties than others. Um, But it was, I think one thing that was consistent for a lot of the youth and that was consistent for me as well. I know another person I interviewed for this project went to school in Minnetonka, and she also did not recall any Indian education programming. So now, again, I want to kind of look to see these different areas right. if they've had them and when they began.
2: Yeah, it was. It's interesting. My my grandkids have mentioned, you know, um, that they learn the information and histories of others, Mm -hmm. and so they were really curious why others didn't learn about them and why they were segregated. They didn't use the word segregated, but they were separated, and they wondered why it wasn't uh, for their whole class to learn about.
1: Right, So,
2: um,
1: so when the students are pulled from their regular classes for the Indian education programming,
2: Right, where they, you know, they learn uh, in our history about, you know, the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. They learn about uh, slavery, they learn about, so they, they're like, we learn about everybody else, but it's, it's. they don't learn about us. We, we, right. We're we, learning about us and our culture. But, so it was an interesting comment from kids.
1: Right, to have that kind of recognition. Yeah. Um. That is that is a really important p- point to think about. Is why isn't American Indian history incorporated into yeah. this curriculum for all students?
2: Yeah, I think it can be someday,
1: especially in these native places yes. like the Haha Wakfadan Bassett Creek area.
2: Yeah, it's that is uh, I get chills just when you say the name, mm-hmm. and where I currently live backs up to the, the creek, which I played in as a little girl. And, oh boy, it was so fun. But when I lived in Robbinsdale, um, closer to North Memorial, before I moved to this home that backs up to Bassett Creek. And my husband happened to be driving through the neighborhood and saw this house and the property, it's, it's just under a half acre. Oh,
1: wow. That's a good sized lot for this area.
2: It is to be in the, you know, close to this, being in this, in a city, mm-hmm. uh, even though it's a suburb, and then backing up to the creek uh, that I grew up on and, and swam in and caught crayfish. And, but when I walked onto the property, I, it was, um, the term I might use would be mystical. Mm-hmm. It was wooded and it was overgrown because the people who owned the home had passed. And so it was vacant for a year before we got it. And it, and the home really was not a home that I was like, oh, I have to have a split level house. Mm-hmm. It was the land that spoke to me. I could see the trees in the winter with snow on them. And this was summer. And I could just, it was just a calling that this is where I should live and connect. Mm -hmm. And so it's, I've had some really supernatural experiences with the land and with um, our native relatives, because land holds a memory Mm-hmm. And so I knew that this was inhabited at one point by the Dakotas. and maybe I don't know that they lived right there because it's a swamp swampy area, mm-hmm. but I know it was traveled. I know it was um, I know they they lived very close and and it was inhabited by. Dakota.
1: Yeah, I'm so excited to hear more about this. And I also believe I shared with you that on June 4th, there'll be a community wide event to celebrate this project. And if you're able to attend that, I'm really um, hopeful to introduce you to Jim Rock, who's Dakota, and his wife, Roxanne Gould, um, who live in Golden Valley as well and have so much knowledge and history to share of this region. And I know they'd be excited to hear your experience of living right along the creek as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this kind of guides me to a next another set of questions and thinking about the geography of this place. So when you think of the Bassett Creek area, do you relate to this region as a native person, if at all? And you kind of hinted at this in your previous response.
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, As I said, when I walked on the property, I, first of all, the familiarity with uh, the creek and the place of my upbringing and the fondness of playing in the creek and um, just having a place that was the wooded area with the watershed. We had a, um, and so, yeah, definitely, I, as I spoke a little bit about, I had some Uh, supernatural is the only way I can put it in touch with the native side because I am Ojibwe but also in my lineage is um, Dakota Mm -hmm. and so you know it's probably a little teeny big toe but it's uh, a woman was her name was we named her Sioux woman and that was the translation from what the name was she was married to a great great great-grandfather, um, and it would be the Metawakan tribe, mm-hmm. which that's who she belonged to, and um, I, growing up, I'm a light, I'm a light skin. I'm only a quarter Indian, mm-hmm. um, and so, and because of the um, the blood quantum issues, and, and the recording of us mm-hmm. early on, mm-hmm. I fall under where I'm not a member of our tribe. The three younger siblings are not and the three older siblings of my family are members of white earth, okay? And so I was always felt a little disconnected until moving into the home that I live in now and had the supernatural experiences. Um, I think everybody might be familiar with the book, Indian in the Cupboard. (laughs) <laughs> um but I actually have pictures of me with my grandkids sitting on a bench and behind me is the house and sliding doors and my husband was taking a series of pictures of me with four of my grandsons and so he was standing in front of me taking these pictures the house is behind me and I chose a specific one of the group of these pictures To put as my screensaver Mm -hmm. and on my uh, laptop and for about a year i kept having this thought of look in the window and i would argue with myself and i would think no i'm not going to look in the window i'd look at the picture of me with my kids you know my grandkids And finally, one day that compelling thought of look in the window, the sliding glass window behind me. And when I did, there are natives in the image of this window.
1: In the reflection almost.
2: Yes, it looks like an X-ray. So the, the features like their cheekbones and their, and even a big war bonnet and Um, There's, there's many and then when I went I chose this picture which is nearing the end because I wanted to find one where the kids were looking at the camera, and they were smiling I wanted a smiling picture of them. And so as I went through the series, in the image in the window, all the natives were, um, they were uh, profiled. Okay. And as the series of pictures went, you watch the image change till they all were facing
1: wow. straight on.
2: And um, in a lot of the research with that, because I was just astounded at this, of course, and and thinking, oh, my gosh, this is crazy. And why me? I was the, you know, Uh, least expected to work in Indian housing with my family my mother being um, uh, in Indian housing since she was worked for the state she worked for Little Earth um, and she created the first um, Indian housing home buying program in the nation wow and uh, received funding and so her name is Donna Fairbanks and uh, Donna Folstead back in the day but she changed it back to her mother's maiden name um, so it was pretty interesting and through some of the research of trying to figure out who are these natives because some of them are very um, identifiable in the mm-hmm. pictures and one of them is Charles Eastman mm-hmm. which is a Dakota and he was an author and and a very an activist and and so it's just, amazing to me to think it here is. they are and they're behind me but with me
1: so now every time you look at your, this picture this is what you see
2: yes wow yes. and i shared it with uh, some folks with red lake uh of course i've i've shared it with my family members and and we feel like one of the images is um my great grandfather, who was my screensaver on my phone, uh, my wallpaper, whatever it's called. Um, but, um, and, and he's in his war bonnet in one of the pictures that, that we so cherish. And so um, it's just, it, it really began this spiritual side of myself in connection with this land mm-hmm. and who I am and what runs through my veins.
1: Right, and I think it's also a, a reminder that this is an indigenous place. Yes. And that your relatives are with you. Your, our community members are with you.
2: Yes, absolutely. Wow. <laughs> it's kind of crazy, but it's it was real.
1: Right. So you have this, you do have this real connection um, in particular when you move to the home that you currently live in um, and everyday reminders, it sounds like as well.
2: Absolutely.
1: So you've told me previously a little bit about your work. Do you work in Minneapolis? Do you travel a bit for work?
2: Uh, Yes. I'm actually self-employed and I'm an independent contractor. So I do Right now I have a contract where I'm working with Little Earth Housing as a housing navigator. And um, it's funded through AmeriCorps Heading Home Corps. But I have a contract um, through the National Indian Housing Council And so I'm contracted and that's where I would do the travel. So little earth housing is in Minneapolis and it's the only housing that's specific for native in the country. Um, But then my other work, if I travel, I do home buying education training. I do team building training, board of commissioner training for all Indian housing entities. Mm -hmm. And that's brought me all over the country. Wow. Yeah. But because of the pandemic, HUD closed, of course, all travel as well as mm-hmm. airlines and everybody else. So it was really stagnant for the two years. So I really hadn't done anything. And I noticed in LinkedIn that Little Earth, uh, well, it was AmeriCorps was looking for housing navigators and in specific for Little Earth. And so I was like, "Ooh, this is a natural fit. And um, I'm not doing any consulting because of the travel restrictions. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and with Native people, it's, you know, not all, please, we're on Zoom, we're both Native, mm-hmm. but with the type of trainings that I do, it's, it's important to build that relationship of trust, because yeah. coming into, you um, into the business of housing especially is so personal and I work with so many different tribes that uh, it's that one-on-one time that 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 makes a difference so I work in Minneapolis until August my contract is contract is up Um, however I have been they're looking for funding to keep me that would so, be so nice. I know, it's, it's, it's so exciting and they'll still let me keep my contract through NEIHC um, so that if, if I'm needed, then they'd give me the grace to be able to go do, to do that as well.
1: Yeah, there's so many housing needs um, across American Indian communities on and off reservation. So this is going off the questions list, I apologize. But I'm interested in knowing through your work, do you primarily work with American Indian people in urban areas, reservation communities, or rural areas, or in suburbs, or like a mix of the these geographical residential places? Because here you are living in Golden Valley, an inner ring suburb, a predominantly white suburb, but working with a highly recognizable urban Indian community, yeah. both of which are Native indigenous Dakota places.
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, I. Prior to this, I have done it, it it varies, but I do mostly work on reservations. Okay. so um, here is the first long stint of working with a urban area um, of Native people. I did try back in 2013, um, I I came here with my sister, and we offered the executive director that we would volunteer. So any trainings we do, we would volunteer our time and help people just become uh, for homebuyer readiness, for financial wellness, uh, do... Credit counseling to to open the doors for some of the people and the folks living here um, in the city, and it wasn't accepted. They didn't do it, so I know it it it's come full circle because here I am, right? And um, and it's it's definitely different than the natives that I work with on reservations. While they're more, you know, I think um, the term Indianish is something that, that I come across, especially in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. So on in with many of the tribes in Minnesota that I've worked with, you'll find that the natives are very some quiet and don't want to speak real loud and so I've done a lot of training in that area because I am while I'm shy in the social end in business I am outgoing and boisterous and so I've done lots of training to help I've trained trainers so like they want to introduce financial wellness and home buying education on their uh, with their members and so that's been instrumental i got to spend a summer uh going back and forth to red lake and oh my gosh i got to even go to panema and in red lake Panema is like right between the two lakes and it's a very sacred area and you don't drive there even though you can because it's obviously it's an open reservation even though it's right but you wouldn't go there uninvited
1: mm-hmm.
2: and because they many people the first language english is their second language right. and so i've had some really good experiences and through that summer i've got to see the trainers that i trained who were very quiet in their speech and not to be good morning how are you and speaking in front of groups of 250 at the Indian housing conferences around the country. And one of the women is actually running as a council person for her tribe for, so it's just, it's wonderful.
1: Well, it's very exciting. I spent one summer going back and forth doing research at Red Lake as well. Um, And maybe it was the same summer as you, but it was so nice to be able to be up there surrounded by community learning. Um, and of course, it's just beautiful yes. as well.
2: It really, really but
1: I think Red Lake has done some really good work in housing in Minneapolis in oh, recent years boy. in their construction of their affordable housing
2: complex as well. Yeah, they are known um, in Indian country. They are a perfect example of, of uh, how to run a program. And I'm the two people who run uh, the program, um, Red Lake Reservation Housing Authority are my mentors, Jane Barrett and uh, Linda Adams McGraw. They're, they're, deep, they're dear friends of my mother's um, and thus they became dear friends and mentors to me.
1: That must be so nice to see see how everything's unfolding and the work they're continuing to do for their, their community.
2: Absolutely. And they're so willing to help other tribes with best practices and um, challenge that's challenges that they've faced and how they handled them. And they, they, I know um, they came into the housing authority. It has to be over 20 years ago. And it was uh, not the way it is now. Mm-hmm. And they really built this program with ethics and integrity and uh, pride. And um, they've really just built that, that reputation that so many of our other tribes have, uh, have and do model after.
1: Right, I think housing too is such an important place or area to research and to have more conversations about and provide more education about because it really is something that a lot of Native communities have maybe struggled with. And in my own research, I'm not sure if I've shared this with you before, in my own research, I really look at this historical trajectory of what I call Federal Indian housing policy that begins with treaty making and removal and the creation of reservation systems because that's all linked to today's access or lack thereof of of housing on reservation and off reservation.
2: And gaining that understanding um, like within our reservation and I'm sure others that the housing on the reservation it's like it's a hud house mm-hmm. you know it's not like our house it's right. a hud house and therefore um it, it it's learned it's a it's unlearning it, that no this is it may have been built with hud dollars but this is our house our reservation's home that that people can start their their journey and get on their feet and move on to their own home right and you can own a home even off the reservation
1: right and there's programs that can help you
2: exactly and it's like huh well we're taught because i was an urban indian i am an urban indian But there's that mindset of, well, you're, you know, you're an urban Indian, you're concrete Indian, you don't really understand, you don't live on the rise, you don't understand that. And it's like, well, you know, I think we both could learn from each other, and, Mm -hmm. and unlearn from each other. And uh, so it's just opening the mind of, you know, they're taught a lot of uh, folks that I've spoke, have spoken to have you know, said, you know, we're taught to get an education and go back to our reservation and, and utilize our education to help. And while that's a good practice and, and necessary, you can also, you know, out of six kids, maybe one of the kids wants to move to California, mm-hmm. you know, or Florida or wants to be a movie star or, you know, whatever it is that just opening your mind to the possibility of, of home ownership somewhere else or home ownership at all.
1: Right. And you are living you know, in an urban and suburban area and still working with the native community. So it's work that can also be done off reservation.
2: Absolutely. One day I was sitting in my living room and I had the windows open. It was a really cool evening. And I, I've shared about some supernatural things that have happened. Well, all of a sudden I hear powwow music and I'm thinking, this is crazy. Am I like going crazy? So I'm listening and it turns out, and then it was like two minutes Mm -hmm. and it stopped. And it was specific powwow music. It was the drums and singing. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I'm backed up to woods. Yes, there's a house. But in the summer, you can't even see the house. And yes, there are other houses to the side. But uh, about three months later, I was looking out my window and it was winter now. And there was a teepee (laughs) in the backyard, kitty corner from my house behind me Uh and uh, away from the creek, kitty corner. And it was like, oh, my gosh. And I saw some people walking in the woods, not long after that. And here it turns out a native family moved in there
1: and they were doing
2: ceremony. Wow. And so the teepee was up for about, it was less than a week, but I figured out that's where the powwow music was coming from.
1: Wow. I feel like there's just so many connections. Um,
2: And they were Dakota yeah and maybe it's if you said this other people live in this area in it could be the same people uh rock the last name yeah
1: jim rock and Jim rock and it could
2: be where he lives yeah um i don't know yeah
1: i was thinking that when you were sharing this story because they have shared um when i did the interview with them um you know they do ceremony yeah. But once the recording stops, um, we'll have to figure it out if they yeah. are indeed your neighbors. Cause I do know where they live. Um, when my husband and I bought our house in crystal, not far from where you live mm-hmm. within that first week of living there, I was doing something and in not inside unpacking probably. And my husband was outside, but he comes running in. He's like, Casey, Casey, there's like an Indian guy uh, that lives behind us. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> he's like, he's wearing one of those like ribbon shirts, you know? I'm like, what? Oh, he's got long hair and a ponytail. I'm just like, what? <laughs> like, these are all these stereotypes. So I come up and I look and I was like, oh yeah, I think he is native. And the the gentleman was working in his backyard and we had a, a fence that separated our yards. But over time um, I came to realize that that was Dave Larson. Okay. Um, And I don't think they lived there full time. So they were always kind of like hit and miss. Um, They weren't there a whole lot. And when I moved to Madison, um, the street that I live on, just up the road from me is a native woman. Um, Well, she has since moved, they just moved this past summer, but she was a Ho-Chunk woman who is a journalist, um, pretty well known, worked for Madison Magazine, but most recently has transitioned to go on to become the CEO of Indian Country Today. Oh, cool. I know. So here we are in these like very white suburban places. Yes. But there are Native community members. So this leads me back to the questions and thinking about how has living in the Bassett Creek area informed your identity, if at all, as a suburb and thinking about being a native person in these really white environments away from reservation communities?
2: You know, it it brings me to, because of the land, um, and the creek being right there, and the woods, and the wildlife, and it's hard to separate the thoughts of the past, of how we lived, and what we were allowed, and that's such a sad word, allowed to do, Mm -hmm. with ceremony, with hunting, with gathering with, um, our medicines. Um, and it's affected me in the way that I honor the past with it, but it saddens me in the sense that, that there aren't more natives and that, mm-hmm. you know, if you, let's say, you may get stopped by the police if you went and did a ceremony mm-hmm. um, or questioned. what are you doing? Because I was walking behind and gathering and looking and and um, I had people and it wasn't their property. It was it's public land, but uh, I had people actually stop. what are you doing? What are you doing back there? And it was just so strange to me Um, and and uh, thinking about. I'm just walking and I'm just looking and and actually I was picking up garbage. Um, You know, as I noticed in the woods, I thought, well, I'm out here and gee, I noticed a lot of trash. So I just started gathering the trash and just spending time. Mm -hmm. So it's really just. being in that predominantly uh, white area, I of course don't want to offend anybody. And I don't want to scare anybody just by my simple walking through the woods. Um, I actually sent a card to uh, the people because they don't live, they live like two houses down from me and it was woods right there. And it was a man and he was like, it's what are you doing and he was so upset and I, I was like well if this bothers you I'm just you know throwing trash and um but I won't do it you know I'll go back home and uh I sent him a card with a big crane I mean a beautiful beautiful card just saying I didn't mean to frighten you and I'm your neighbor and I own my home and mm-hmm. I've it, You know, I just felt like I was justifying my
1: presence
2: being yes, my presence and just
1: yeah, and doing something really responsible, which is caring for the land and caring for the watershed, which has been so polluted.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. So but I I still wanted to. I didn't want an enemy. I mean, I had we had lived there for 10 years. And, you know, it's uh, lots of young people are moving in. We're like the, the oldies um, and, but he was an oldie. He said, I've been living here my whole, I mean, he was just, I, and he was arguing. I said, sir, do I, I, you hear what I'm saying? I'm mm-hmm. not arguing. I would be happy to move along. And not pick up the garbage. Right, and not pick up the trash that I see lots of things that I think, no, I'm just kidding, uh, of, that you have thrown back here. Um, but, you know, I still didn't want an enemy out of him. Mm-hmm. You know, it's still that, you know, I think that, you know, I've done lots of thought about because I wasn't raised any religion. My, my mm-hmm. mother grew up in the orphanage and it was Catholic nuns that were very cruel. And my father grew up and they were poor, but they never really had religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I yearned for something. And so I became a Christian. But I, that, that left me with many questions of God and hell and how would all of that. And so, but I think we carry that DNA Mm-hmm. And my sister really helped me open up because anything with spirituality or woohoo stuff. My older sister really helped me open my mind because she would talk about past lives. And, and I believe it's through this awakening moving actually on the creek right, um, in 2005 that helped me open it up. And it's like, well, what's a past life? Mm-hmm. Is that DNA that runs in us? that I have my grandfather's laugh for this or that. And, and then it went further in my thought process of the trauma right. and the, uh, some of the characteristics I carry.
1: And we do know that historical trauma is past
2: in DNA. Yes, absolutely. So some of my quirks of home, I just want to be with my family. Right. And I was never, I'm a homesick kid. I always, you know, I, and I think it's just all that. Um, my grandmother was in a boarding school in Tacoma, right. Wisconsin. Mm. And so, you know, I think,
1: right. And knowing the history of your grandma and even your mom. Oh my God. yes, Not necessarily having a, a um, I'm going to say words that might not be accurate. So feel free to correct me, but not having like a safe and stable home.
2: Yes. Something
1: you've almost yearned for. And now you have. Yes. And making sure that you protect that through good relations with neighbors who might not always be
2: kind. Yes. Yes. And judgmental of, you know, because we, we've been called every name in the book,
0: you Mm -hmm. know,
2: as a family because we were different growing Mm -hmm. up in crystal, you know? Um, And my grandmother who lost the kids and my mom went to the orphanage, she was not proud to be Indian. She was, you know, she's half Indian and she was sent to the boarding school in Toma. Mm -hmm. And she, she, my mother embraced it out of her, the three girls that my mom comes from three girls and, She's the youngest, and she's the only one who embraced being Native. Mm-hmm. And my grandmother drove her crazy. But there were many things that my grandmother didn't speak about.
1: Right. So, and she was and we, not to in the boarding yes. schools.
2: And so, I mean, she was a lefty. And in in boarding school, she had her hand tied to her, her arm and... Uh, she could not, yes and my mother's a lefty so even seeing my mother write with her left hand would drive my grandma crazy wow just trigger those thoughts of beatings on her hand and then being yeah. thus being t- tied so that she was forced to use the right hand because the left was evil and savage and crazy um I came became very close with my grandma for the last 10 years of her life. and But she never mentioned the boarding school. Mm-hmm. I, all the stories I've got is once grandma passed was from my mother.
1: Mm-hmm. And only yeah. then did your mom speak of it, probably.
2: Yeah, because oh. it was just too painful for grandma. So, yeah, but she's on the other side. And in, in subsequent pictures that I've taken of that the sliding door windows, I've got my grandmother. Her mm-hmm. face, she showed herself in that window in a whole different series of pictures. And she's with her family and she's proud of who she she's able to be in the spirit world, mm-hmm. who she was all along. And she's
1: still with you. Yeah. I'm glad that you have these photographs, these contemporary photographs um, to connect you with the past.
2: Yeah, it's when I first saw it, I thought, what's Carrie doing in the window? Because my uh, my older sister looks identical to my grandmother. Mm -hmm. And then my other my oldest sister, she looks identical to my Norwegian grandmother.
1: So, so but I how that works here. in families?
2: Uh huh. And it's like that's not Carrie, that's Grandma, and but she's young, she's mm-hmm. not eighty-six years old, Grandma. She's she showed herself young. Do any of your siblings live in the hahawakdan area? Um, my brother. Uh, no, he actually lives off of Minnehaha. Okay. Um, no. No.
1: Um, it would, I was wondering, because if they did, I would ask if they had similar kind of connections to the past as you've been having as well.
2: You know, it's my sister Carrie, the one who looks just like grandma, she lived in Minnetonka. Um, and now she lives in Duluth part time. And she lives in Florida half the time. But then that Duluth connection with with the Ojibwe. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, no, I'm the only one. It's, I think, again, it's that home.
1: Right. That's I'm, like I'm driving down for the you.
2: streets that I rode my bicycle. The home that I live in, I actually trick-or-treated at oh my goodness (laughs) and I remember the last year I was 14 taking my brother and sister and this was the rich part of that neighborhood because we Mm -hmm. grew up in the slab homes and then a block a two blocks over was golden valley and then the nice homes started with basements and you know more than one level and uh yeah the guy who lived there I remember we were going to the the door and saying trick or treat and he looked at me and said aren't you too old (laughs) i was just like stop put the candy in the bag yeah (laughs) and uh it's just crazy to think this is where i'm living in that sense but uh, yeah it's something drew my husband then when i saw the land and it was just like just these pictures started Mm-hmm. And it's actually in the back of our house, there's a dry, um, it's now permanently wet because they, they opened up a, the big field behind, um, our house it was all woods and then the creek. Well, then, um, they opened a big water reservoir because okay. all the rainwater drains down to our area, thus the valley and so they made a big water reservoir at the behind our house and at the end of our block they actually the city bought a couple of the houses and tore them down because they were eroding into the creek Mm -hmm. and losing land but uh so we have a little um vein of the creek right in our yard so i've got ducks and Wood ducks and mallard and oh my gosh, and every bird you can think of, and fox and deer
1: and A good habitat.
2: Yeah. Really, really beautiful.
1: So haha wachpadan is the Dakota name for Bassett Creek. What do you think about the role and importance of language and place names, particularly in these predominantly white settler spaces?
2: I love it. It's like, even when you say it, I get chills on my legs. And that's always been an indicator of spirit touching me to say, this is good. Mm -hmm. This is just good. And I love the way you say it. I have to learn how to say it.
1: I think um, as this oral history project has progressed, um, my pronunciation has evolved.
2: (laughs) Well, you say it well. Thank you. And so I do think it's very important and I do. uh, It resonates and that in a predominantly white area that it's even open to do this Mm -hmm. is a a miracle.
1: Right. This also leads to my next question then. So this American Indian, this American Indian oral history project grew out of a land acknowledgement process um, done by the valley community presbyterian church in golden valley so what do you think about land acknowledgement statements Um, and after the work has been done to actually create the statement what do you see as necessary or um, supplemental follow-up work that should also be done
2: well you know I've had I've thought a lot about this um, in reading the questions and i've I've talked with some folks too to to get some uh, perspectives of some elders and um, you know I think that the land acknowledgement is important um but, there seems to be labels in there that, mm-hmm. that maybe doesn't resonate as much is the, the nicest way I can put it. Um, but it's still a land acknowledgement. And so it's so important. And, and but just being um, careful with, with labels. Of with woven within that land acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, as far as that, it's really what do I see going further would be more free access mm-hmm. to the space without um, being, hey, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Or having the police called for ceremony for picking. Our medicines for um, without harassment. Mm -hmm. I know that's a big ask, right? Because people live all on the edges and most aren't native. Mm -hmm. And, but I think an awareness of the land acknowledgement and bringing that acknowledgement that these are ways that if you see someone doing a ceremony that you don't have to be afraid. Right. And protective of this is my land, even though it's not really your land, it's Mm -hmm. public land. And we once did this freely.
1: Right, I was thinking so much about land when you were talking about this neighbor previously as well is that these really Euro-American kind of conceptions of land property, land Mm -hmm. ownership are so rigid. Yes. And what that entails and what that means in terms of exclusion and lack of access as well.
2: Yeah. Going, wow, a person's just walking in the woods and you're upset Mm -hmm. and yelling and not listening because I was
1: Right. I also, do whatever. This was probably during the day and you don't seem like a very threatening person. <laughs> right.
2: Now, now, for all fairness, I did have camouflage stuff on because I think it was, um, it was probably early, early spring. So while there weren't, there wasn't snow on the ground, but you could see. And again, I was just going back there and and I think I might've been looking for sheds. Cause I found many uh, antlers um, mm-hmm. and, and then noticing trash. And so it was just so startling to have somebody so upset about it. But again, I was just hands up and, Oh, it's okay. Right. It's okay. You don't
1: know what's going to happen.
2: Yeah. So it's like, so my own. Um, so I, I think that the land acknowledgement will help in that mm-hmm. more awareness that there right. are people
1: that are native that live in our community and right. that should be related. Right. right. So even some of these land acknowledgement statements coming from larger organizations or institutions can do a lot for individuals, non-native individuals in that community, also then recognizing that longer history, but also contemporary connection. Yes. And the access, free access much more accessible access if that makes sense accessible it, access.
2: it does it totally does and i really think jim rock is the kitty corner neighbor behind me when i'm sitting there thinking about it
1: <laughs> not the one that yelled at you though
2: no no this is no no they're there this is on the side of me but yeah. they're like not far from jim and i believe that's where it is it's the like, and the craziest part with this. I'm sorry to go off track, but it's just in my mind because the house that I live in, this split level house, the builder who built it. Well, the house that that did the ceremony and had the teepee, and then I saw their kids looking in the woods for. Um, they had a drone that they had lost, uh-huh. and so they were in the woods right behind my house and i certainly didn't go back and go what are you doing back here you know i was happened to be in the backyard and just said hi how are you you guys looking for something you know and wanted to help but um and then i learned about them but it's their home is the same builder built the home it's like we have identical houses even which is just kind of crazy because i had looked online to see what does that house? Oh my gosh, it's like it's a mirror image of my home.
1: Wow. <laughs> Such a small world. Yeah. <laughs> so, in thinking about the watershed and the environmental aspect of it, what advice would you like to give to those who help manage and steward the Haha Wakpadon Bassett Creek watershed in the area today? Are there any particular initiatives or changes you would like to see?
2: Hmm. You know, it's it seems to me in that it there is great care in in this. Um I think really just continuing to honor it and and to keep it clean. Um, You know, like I said, because we're in Golden Valley, we have a lot of water running to us from other cities Mm -hmm. and just making sure that that is cared for in a way that it's not um, negatively affecting
1: yeah um caring for the environment a little bit more it sounds like
2: yes because Um, it is so beautiful and so important
1: right and it's not just this one like one creek there's lots
2: yes that go to it the runoff from everything goes to it and making sure that we're not just getting everybody else's polluted runoff, Mm -hmm. whatever that runoff is.
1: Right, right. Like your house on the creek is only one house. What about everything else that's along it? Um, Businesses, golf courses, and private property. Yes. Yeah. Is there anything that you would like future generations to know about your experience as a Native person growing up? in a place like golden or growing up in a place like the Haha watershed um, these predominantly white suburbs um uh,
2: just how how precious this is in in and it, for children to be able to go in in this water and play, and explore, and safely, and and um, that it's clean, that you, your kids don't have to worry about disease being in it. Um, and then all of the wildlife that depends on this water and From the rocks, to the crayfish, to the fish, to the ducks, to the geese, to the everything that's connected Mm -hmm. to this. But as a person for children, I think especially to be able to explore like I did. Right. You know, we had picnics. We would pack a little lunch and ride our bikes down uh, Lilac Drive, it was called, and We'd drive, we'd ride, you know, four blocks to the creek and we'd spend the whole day and back in the woods at one part of the creek because it wound through the woods and there was a tire swing and so we, our a rope swing, we mm-hmm. jump in. I mean, we just had to be able to do that for future generations.
1: Yeah. I feel like um, these last two questions almost go hand in hand and thinking about like the care of the watershed and thinking about future generations of Native people in this area and just the access and making sure that the watershed is there for future generations. Yes. And making sure it's accessible for future generations. Um, This is totally circling, circling back to the very beginning, but you said as a youngster, you grew up at highway just off of highway 136 and that's pretty close to where the valley community presbyterian church is located
2: off of lilac drive i know the church that's where i vote okay and it's <laughs> so that has been vote. like a
1: constant figure in your yes life. i was mm-hmm. riding
2: my bike in front of that and the park behind it yeah it was, years ago it was called woodlawn park mm-hmm. now i i it's uh starts with a G. I don't even know the name of the park but it's it's the park that I played at as a child and went ice skating in the winter and that church was always right there.
1: Yeah, it was built in the early 1950s. Mm-hmm. Yeah
2: was the new it's right on yeah. mylock drive there yeah. I, yeah absolutely.
1: So exciting. Well, is there anything else that you would like to share uh, that I may have missed or we didn't touch on?
2: no i think really just it, you you speaking about keeping um making sure that this exists mm-hmm. and the recognition that before all, all the homes were built here and and recognizing that there were people here right this was someone's land in the sense of living and moving because you know with Native people especially in the woodlands that we move season to season Mm -hmm. so if it and water was always so important and so I know that this oh it goes all the way to Medicine Lake right you know and all and the way to the Mississippi, to River. The Mississippi mm-hmm. and all things that we and so just that care and accessibility mm-hmm. and honoring of the Native people who want to come back to it mm-hmm. and honor it
1: yeah you know it also makes you think about you know, you and your, chil- your children, your sons didn't grow up with Indian education programming, but now you have these grandchildren who are, but they yeah. wonder like, well, why, why are we getting pulled out? Why aren't we learning this in our regular class? But even something so highly accessible as this creek or yeah. seemingly accessible, right? We, we could have access to it um, that folks can learn so much from just by being on the land, um, both Native and non-Native children
2: yeah because they're you know it's it's having that history told and the inclusion of everyone learning our history we know everyone else's history that's one of the things my grandkids have said you know we learn about everybody else but how can we just go right and it's like that's a good question but i'm glad that you get to go You know, because they've got to go mapling and, you know, uh, they've got to do lots of things. And so I'm grateful for that. But it is still a little strange that the interest, um, Mm -hmm. is anybody else interested in, in us?
1: Yeah. Well, hopefully we see change. Yeah. In the coming years. Um, and while they're still, you know, in school.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's change. You had, you had mentioned that in Anoka that you had, you know, so, um, where I, I know you're younger than I am, but, uh, my children in Hopkins area did not. Right. So it's interesting.
1: It is. And what there's progress. Right. I I think a lot, it sounds like, is also based on geography and where you're living. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for joining
2: me today, Kathy. Thank you for having me. All right.
0: Thank you for listening. This project may serve as a model for other communities that seek to go beyond land acknowledgement. To learn more about this oral history project, please contact Hennepin History Museum. The project was produced following the standards and principles of the Oral History Association. In addition to this podcast, the interview recordings, transcripts, and narrator files included signed legal released agreements, can be found at the Hennepin History Museum. Funding and other support was provided by the St. Anthony's Falls Heritage Board, Hennepin History Museum, Valley Community Presbyterian Church, and the University of Wisconsin. This publication was also made possible in part By the people of Minnesota through a grant funded by an appropriation to the Minnesota Historical Society from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Any views, findings, opinions, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this publication are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent those of the State of Minnesota, the Minnesota Historical Society, or the Minnesota Historic Resources Advisory Committee. Anaya Wopira Thank you for listening.